what I'll do is I'll kind of tell you a little bit about myself, and I think that'll be a good introduction as far as, you know, what um, I can contribute. I graduated, uh, my wife and I, you know, typical Adventist, we went to um, this fine institution here, and uh, we graduated, and uh, we both had our degrees, and then we got out into the real world, and then we realized we don't know what we're doing. There were so many things, and you know, not to disparage my wife, and if she was here, she would attest to this. Um, my wife had wonderful parents, but her parents were the type of parents that they did everything. So my wife grew up in that environment where her mother took care of all of her needs and everything, and so in, in that process, she never learned anything. I grew up in a home, a split home, single fa- uh, My mom remarried. I, unlike my wife, fifth-generation Adventist, I was not an Adventist, and then I became um, Seventh-day Adventist. But prior to that, my stepfather never taught me anything about being useful. So all of a sudden, my wife and I meet we, at this institution. We get married. We go out there, and uh, my car breaks down. I have no idea what to do with anything. My wife didn't know how to cook. My wife didn't know how to clean house. And, you know, again, it's not to disparage her. It was the reality of we really were two useless human beings. And, and I say that, you know, ashamedly. But we didn't know anything. I knew I, I learned a lot about business. I went into corporate America, did really well, made a lot of money, um, found out that that was not my life. I didn't enjoy it at all. I was very miserable in, in that and um, started my own business, you know, many years down the road, went into that. And after the economy tanked, my business failed. And so my wife and I were kind of at a crossroads trying to figure out what we were going to do. So I started, I always had a small garden, got into gardening, and uh, decided that, hey, I'm pretty good at this. I know what I'm doing, and I'll go, you know, and do this as I look for another job. Um, now, I was a man, I was mid-level manager in a Fortune 75 co- company. From there, went to a smaller firm. I was vice president, operations and business. From there, I bought, you know, started my own business. So when I was doing my resume, I tell everybody that I was the only person who lied on my res- resume going backwards. Rather than embellishing, I was deep embellishing because every time I went for a job, you know, they would tell me, you're overqualified. Interestingly, when I got out of high school, I mean college, I couldn't get a job because I was underqualified. Now I was facing the opposite extreme. I was overqualified. Nobody wanted to hire me. Nobody wanted to pay me what I was worth. So I remember going to one job and I said, don't pay me what I'm worth. Pay me what the job is paying. I'll work for that. And the person looked at me and said, very honestly, I'm not going to hire you because answer me this question. If I hire you, someone, something else comes along. Are you going to go and take that? And I said, that's a very good question. And I said, honestly, I'm not going to lie to you. I said, I'll commit to you for a certain time period. But if a job comes along, I'm definitely going, you know, that direction. But I wouldn't just leave and not work that out with you. And he said, well, by the time I get done training you, all the effort, all the money, and I know business, it's going to cost me so much amount of money, and then you're going to leave. And I said, that's fair. So I didn't get the job. And um, anyways, went into agriculture, and um, I was, initially, it started doing good. And then after that, it was abysmal. I was doing terrible. Everything I thought I knew, nothing was working. And then I started to realize that I really didn't know anything. 
And then I, because I'd been in the corporate world for so many years, my hands, I hated my hands to get dirty. I was washing them 40, 50 times a day. I didn't like sweating, didn't enjoy it, didn't like anything about it. And so um, a, a guy came to our church and asked me um, if I was going to the Adventist Agricultural uh, Conference that was True Education Agricultural Conference that was ha- happening at, um, at UT Pines. And I said, what conference? No, I haven't heard about it. And I guess he assumed that I knew what was what in the Adventist church, which I didn't. I didn't even know that there were other Adventist farmers. I mean, I never thought about it, obviously, there were, but I never thought that far. So I went to the Adventist Agricultural Conference at UG Pines. That was back in um, 2012. And I spent, you know, an abysmal year just trying to figure out how to grow. Did a terrible job. I get to the conference, and I tell everybody I went to learn how to grow better produce. At that conference, I met Bob Jorgensen, and he changed my life. I'm almost wanting to get emotional. Um... He was a neat man. The concepts that he introduced me to, I'd never heard. And you know, initially, I started blaming everybody else. And then after my wife and I started, you know, talking about it some more and listening and, and, and um, rehashing what went on at the conference, I realized that there was nobody to blame but myself. Okay, my parents didn't give it to me. My, my, parents, uh, my wife's parents didn't introduce it to her, and they can use the same excuse that their parents didn't introduce them to it, so on and so forth. But ultimately, I'm responsible for me, and it was my negligence, my own personal, and I'm not accusing, I'm sharing with you how I've arrived. And I learned that it was my failure to study what God has given me. So many truths were lost to me for many, many years. And when I went there at that conference and my mind was opened up and I saw what the potential was, what God had in store for me, I couldn't help but change. And so after I left the conference, I called my wife, um, got on the phone, and, I, uh, and she answered and I said, we're changing our lives. Now, fortunately, my wife, all along the conference, I was texting her. I would text and say, look up this, look up this, because, you know, Bob would be presenting and, and, and say something, and these were just jams. I'd never heard them before in my life. And so she was reading some of these, and, you know, God's really gracious, especially when he matches two people, um, and they agree on something the way he wants them to go. And so her heart started to change. So when I called and said, we're changing our lives, she understood. Prior to that, people would ask me, you know, what, what I did. You, you, you all, you know, those of you ladies who are here, your husbands are married, what do you do? They ask your husband, and, you know, I kind of sheepishly would. Sometimes I would ignore the question. Sometimes I would, well, I play in the dirt. I still use that term. But, you know, I never wanted to answer because I lost my business. I was looking for a job. This was a temporary thing. I was sending out hundreds of resumes a year just trying to get a new job, trying to get back into the corporate world. But once I discovered this, if somebody asks me now, I loudly proclaim, I'm a farmer. I'm not ashamed. I have no reason to be sheepish. And I still say I play in the dirt because I do. It's sometimes it's like playing. And I have a lot of fun. Now, I'm going to digress for a second. If I ask you, what do you do? If you want to plant a plant, if you want to grow something, what do you do? I'm going to ask the, the children. No adults answer. You guys can answer. You guys I want to ask the children, if you want to grow, let's say, a tomato, I want to grow a tomato plant, what do I do? What do I need to do? 
What do I do? Anybody? I put a hole in the ground. And you put the plant or the seed. The plant or the seed. And you water it. I water it. Sure. It's good to go. Is that it? Fertilizer. Why do I put fertilizer? I need sunlight. To give the soil nutrients. You're too old. Yes, sir? Did you have your hand up? To give the soil nutrients. What else? Anybody else? Now, does anybody know why I give the soil nutrients? Uh, still, there's an age limit on this question. Anybody under 15, 16 and under? Why do I put fertilizer in the soil? Why does the soil need nutrients? So that the plant can grow. So that the plant can grow. What do the nutrients do? Makes it grow by feeding. Let me tell you something. Let me share something with you. Do you know that when you put nutrients into the ground, you're not feeding the plant? Did you know that? Did you know that? Traditional farming tells us that you want to grow something, your soil needs nitrogen, your soil needs um, calcium. You know, put fertilizer in there because you need to feed the plant, right? Well, what's really happening is you're not feeding the plant. There's all these microbes. Do you know that if you take a tablespoon, just a tablespoon, and you go out in some good, healthy soil, you take one tablespoon, there's over a million, some, some say a billion, some say several million, we don't know. There's no way to really count. But one tablespoon of good soil has over a billion microbes in it. Now, do you know what these microbes do? Do you know what they do? Do you know what microbes are? Microbes are little tiny, tiny animals that you cannot see with your naked eye. You can only see them through, under microscopes. And when you put nutrients into your soil, these microbes eat all the nutrients. And then what the microbes do is they take, and some of it is transformed into different things, and they actually push these things into the plant. So Mrs. White talks about this. I know it's in Desire of Ages and a few other places. She talks about the circle of benevolence. And nowhere can you understand that as much as you can when you look at agriculture. So me, as a farmer, I go out there. What I do is I loosen my soil. I till the soil. When I till the soil, what I'm doing is I'm loosening it, loosening it, it up. I'm putting um, air into the soil. And it, soil that has air in it, the microbes love the air. If the soil's compacted and it's hard, you're not going to have many microbes. So once the microbes get there, then the microbes start doing their things and they start working the soil and they start uh, releasing all these different types of byproducts and they push them into the plant. And then the plant receives that and the plant uses all of that and from that plant it grows a tomato and then what happens to, t to the tomato? What do you do with the tomato? You eat it, right? So I serve the soil. The soil, by serving the soil, I'm serving those microbes. The microbes then serve the plant and then the plant serves who? So there's a circle of benevolence where service is introduced. I never heard that before in my life. Who would have known that I could have got science, chemistry, and biology all by just talking about how to grow a tomato? So I stick the tomato plant, or I start a, started by seed, I stick it into the ground, and then all of a sudden all of these actions start taking place, and you get this picture of God. Who, who was Jesus? What did Jesus come into this world to do for all of us? Do you know? What did he do? 
I'm still, there's still an age limit on this. Do you guys know what did Jesus do for us? Yeah. He came to serve us. If you look at the picture in the New Testament, everything Jesus did, he showed a willingness to serve. More than anything else, he came to serve humanity. I was just talking, I have four children. Oh, within the past month and a half, my 14-year-old son is now taller than me. He used to be down here, but now he's tall. I'm not very tall. So, um, My 14-year-old son, I have a 12-year-old daughter, a 9-year-old son, and a 6-year-old. That's a lot to remember, a year-old daughter. And in worship, we were talking about this, and, and I was just sharing with them that the creator of the universe, think about this, okay? Let's think. You are the, um, the creator of the universe, okay? You did everything. You own everything. And Jesus could have came when he came. He could have been born in Rome. He could have been the son of the Pharaoh, of, you know, not Pharaoh, I'm sorry, uh, Caesar, thank you. He could have been the son of Caesar, so that when he grew up, he could have been the next Caesar. Do you think Jesus could have done a lot to save the world as Caesar? As Caesar? Now, there's a question to ponder. I don't have an answer on that. But it's a very interesting thought. If Jesus came as a king, he was a king, but instead of a servant king who had no house, no place to live, if he came as the king of the then-known world, do you think he could have done a lot? That's a question for many people with more brain cells than I have. But, um, you know, I think Jesus wanted to show us by serving humanity. We had had this concept of God, but we never had evidence. There was never really any evidence of who God was. Satan was painting one picture. God was painting another picture. And the only way that God could really show who he was was to come and be a servant king. So, let's get back to agriculture. Um, When I left the conference, sorry, we have more people coming in. When I left the conference, my wife and I were, uh, with all these new concepts, we were trying to figure out, what in the world do we do with this? It was so new a concept. It was, we'd never heard it before. It was brand new. What do you do with it? When you get this information, you know, what, what do you do with it? Um... The first thing I wanted to do was get to know Bob Jorgensen. And so I made many phone calls to Bob, and uh, not just Bob, but there were a few other people at the conference. And then as I was um, talking to these people, I started wondering, you know, is there an association that exists that can help people like me? And I called different people, and there didn't. There, there, There existed none. So, based off of that information, I started the new association, the Adventist Agricultural Association. I sent messages out, really, across the world to all the farmers. I I said, okay, who's in farming? I sent it to Weimar, Wildwood, you name it, and invited many of them back to Uchi Pines. We had a conference, which I I, um, coordinated the next year for Bob, and I invented them. We had a breakout session, and that was how the Adventist Agricultural Association started. Um, we had our first conference last year. We have another one coming up this year. It'll be in Texas. Um, I heard an uh. We get requests from so many places. We're trying to reach as many, you know, as much as possible. But um, part of my mission is to try to instill, you know, all this information that I've lost. 
I heard about this symposium and I had no idea who Rob Montag was and I'd heard the name Eugene Pruitt but I didn't know anything about Eugene Pruitt I, I no clue Rob and the other guy by the name of Dan I didn't know who that was so I emailed Rob and I said what is this what's going on and you know we dialogued back and forth God wants every single one of us that means every one of you sitting here doesn't matter how old you are you need to learn these concepts we can't leave it to Bob has done it for years and you know he passed away a little over a week and it's left up to people like me who've not been doing anything have been sitting for many years and I just want to herald this but it cannot stop with just me it cannot stop with Rob it has to be you you know the way to change the world is to change yourself after you change yourself and I started thinking about this I remember I had all this information from that conference what do I do with it I want to change the world but I couldn't and especially you know the sad part is our own church I think is asleep I'm not going to bash them but I think they're asleep to many things for whatever reason you know it may be so I decided okay the only thing I can do is change myself okay I can change help change my wife's mind fortunately she was open to this and then we can work on our children so we started that journey really three years ago we're still on that I wish I could tell you I'm an expert in it I'm not I can I can only tell you what we've experienced you know coming this far but the neat things we learn has been really a blessing and um, you know one, one of these things I want to share with you and I'll, I'll I'm a little bit unorganized today but I'll try to be more organized starting tomorrow but study in agriculture um, lines should be the A, B, and C of the education given in our schools. And that's found in Testimonies, Volume 6, page 179. And I'll read that again. Study in agricultural lines should be the A, B, and C of the education given in our schools. Testimonies, Volume 6, page 179. So then, the question comes, how is agriculture the ABCs of education? How do you grasp that? How do you do that? Well, did you see what I just did with the tomato? Now I'm going to share with you. I was going to tell you this tomorrow, but I'll, I'll think I'll tell it. I'll think of a different story tomorrow. I'll tell you. It's called the Black Magic story. And um, a friend of mine, his name is Whitmar McConnell. He's also uh, affiliated with the Agricultural Association. He shared a story with me. It took place out west uh, several years ago. And they were having a, de a, a pretty bad, severe drought. Well, Whitmar had gone out there, he worked with this farmer, and he showed this farmer what he needed to do to balance his soil. And how many of you know what soil balance is? Let me, I'm a farmer, I'm going to bring up these questions. A few, how many of you have no idea what I'm saying when I say balance your soil? Raise your hands. Okay, so, and the rest of you just don't care, you're neutral? It's about a third and a third. <laughs> I had to learn this okay I remember that first year I told you I was farming I went out there I put my stuff in the ground and I thought that's it but one of the things let me get to that kind of a, through a different angle who planted the first garden who, who in, in, in the Bible Cain Lord God Adam who Okay, those of you who have, has a Bible, somebody find um, Genesis 
2, verse 8. Genesis 2, verse 8. Okay, when you find it, read, go ahead and read it, please. And the Lord God formed man of the... Oh, excuse me. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put man. So who planted the first garden in, in, in the Bible? Now, that fascinated me. That was a new concept. I never, how many times had I read that verse? And I never saw that. I never saw it. And, um, you know, at, at, at the conference, Bob Jorgensen was given the presentation, and he talks about that. And I thought, wow, okay, I know what planting is like. You get out there, your hands are dirty, and you're sweating. Now, this is a perfect environment, so God didn't have to ha- deal with all the weeds and different things. But the neat thing you know, God was willing to get down on his knees and his hands and put those plants in the ground. I thought that was neat. And he gave it to Adam and Eve. And then what did he tell them to do after he planted the garden? Dress it and keep it. Do you know that they've done some research on that? And the word, one of the, it's also translated till. The same word that is used for till is the same word that is used for serve. So in reality, when God tells them to dress and keep it, he's saying, go and serve this. Now, we talked about the microbes a little bit earlier, right? Remember the circle of benevolence? So who are you serving? If you're tilling the ground, who are you serving? No, not yourself. No, not God. Who are you serving? Who? The soil. What's in the soil? Microbes. So you're serving the microbes. And then what does the microbes do? The microbes are really pleased because all of a sudden they're receiving some service. What do the microbes turn around and do? They serve the plant. And then what does the plant do? It produces fruit which serves us. And so there's that circle of benevolence. So God is getting down there and he's teaching Adam right at the beginning all the way back in Genesis about his character. When you think about that, everything about God, what is education? We talked about that a little bit this morning. What is education? What does education do? What is restore the image of God? And we'll talk more about that. When am I stopping? I apologize. Uh, just about an hour. Okay, so three thirty. So um, I lost my train of thought. Well, I'm sorry. So what were we talking about? Help me. Adam in the garden. God showing him to serve. And I went that way because of why was that? I kind of took us. Soil balance, okay. So, soil balance is all about restoring something that is missing. God wanted to show Adam and Eve all the way at the beginning that you're serving. And after sin, God told Adam and Eve, after, even after they sinned, what did he command them to do? He commanded them to still continue to till and um, garden. But instead of this time, there was a difference. They were going to have to deal with thistles and thorns and weeds, and they were going to have to sweat. So because of sin, one of the things that God wanted them to see was because of their sinfulness, they were going to have to help him in redeeming the earth, in restoring this earth back to these, quote-unquote, Edenic conditions. So when you, t- when you want to do a soil balance, when, when you're going to plant, the first thing you want to do, and this guy over here, Floyd, I'm going to pick on him for a second, he knows a lot about this. One of the first things you want to do is you want to do a soil test. In getting the soil test, it's going to tell you what you're missing in that soil. 
And um, um, so that when you, for example, if, if you're growing uh, tomato plants and your tomato leaves are yellow, does, does anybody here know what that means? What is it? You're nitrogen deficient. It means you don't have enough nitrogen in your soil. I knew you knew that. That's why I'm picking on you. You need to add nitrogen. And, you know, one of the things we look at, I heard somebody earlier say that if you look at some of the land here, it's terrible and it's bad. My children know, the, the four of them now know, um, just a simple little lesson. If I say to them, we're walking through a field and they see a dandelion plant, you know, they know what that dandelion plant means. Does anybody here know if you have a dandelion in your field growing, what does it mean? Ah, and do you know that they've discovered that dandelion roots can grow up to eight feet long or deep? And what they will do is they will burrow into the ground and keep going until they find a calcium source. And then they'll pull them up through their roots up to the surface. And as that plant dies, it leaves a deposit of calcium in that area so that a dandelion plant will not grow. What are we taught to do when we see dandelion plant? Pull it up or what? Kill it, how? Herbicide, Roundup, right? But instead of using, through agriculture, if we're there to help redeem and restore the land, God is giving us all these signs. A dandelion means you are calcium deficient. So if you have a garden and there's, there are dandelion plants growing everywhere in that garden, God is helping you. Rather than seeing it as a pest, rather than seeing it as a problem, what you do is say, okay, I'm here to redeem this soil. What is God trying to tell me? There's, what do I need to learn from this? And this becomes a unit study, parents, for your children. You, you, you let them know, okay, this dandelion is here. Let's go and let's research this. Why is a dandelion growing in this soil? What is the problem that I have here? And then you go and you find out that, hey, I need calcium. The problem is, how much calcium do you need? That's where the soil test comes in handy. You go and you take your soil samples, you take it, to send it to, off to the lab, and they'll let you know how many pounds of calcium you'll need to rid yourself of that. And there's so many more examples. You know, that is but one when you talk about um, agriculture. So all of these concepts were being thrown at me, and what do I do with it? What, was, you know, what do I need to, um, to do? I have something written here by Bob, and I wanted to show this, share this, and um, I have some more time. The issue of where manual training, and particularly agriculture, fits into education has been a great topic of discussion and debate in the Seventh-day Adventist educational circles and even beyond. Fascinating, we're not the only people trying to discuss this. Um, a couple of years ago, I was at a small, we were at a meeting, and there were many of us at that meeting, and one of the things we were talking about is how much agriculture has become a powerful witnessing opportunity. And uh, I, I want to share more on that later this week. But it's amazing to see what is happening in this world and um, the neat things that you can do through agriculture that a minister would not have an opportunity to do knocking on someone's door. So we'll talk more about that, but back to this. For many, the manual features of an educational philosophy in an institution are largely that of a means to an end. 
Manual activity has often been referred to as vocational training, which really means that it is training for a vocation. The involvement in manual training at most Adventist schools, when and where it has existed, has largely been under the plan of working your way through school. Since most students do not intend to make a vocation in the lines of manual activity upon completion of their educational pursuits, their participation in these manual activities while in school is often half-hearted at best. While being self-reliant and working one's way through school is a very, very noble objective, is that the primary reason that God spoke so strongly about manual training in our schools? What do you think? Is that the primary reason? If it is primarily a means to an end, then perhaps many are right in promoting the idea that such a method is outdated since most vocations no longer require manual training. Loans, grants, and scholarships are now readily available to enable a student to get his education. And we'll talk more about this. Um, I'll, I'll finish you know, this a little later. I had a couple quotes I wanted to share with you. This one is found in Education, page 271. If you guys have not read the book Education, I encourage you. There are so many ways that you can read this. You can read it online at the Ellen White Estate. It's available free. You can go down to the ABC, purchase a copy. There are other sites on the, on, online that you can download it as a PDF. You can, it's so easy to get this book now, but it will change the way you think about education. With uh, Education 271, with such an army of workers as our youth, rightly trained, might furnish, uh, sorry, let me see this. Rightly trained might furnish how soon the message of the crucified, risen, and soon coming Savior might be carried to the world. Did you guys catch that? Rightly trained these youth, an army of youth. I mean, look everywhere. There's, we're on a campus of a university. If these children were rightly trained, this is saying right, how how soon the message of a crucified, risen, and soon coming Savior might be carried to the whole world. And we're wondering how to do it. We're paying a few pastors to do, you know, as little as possible. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but we're human. There's only so much you can do. There's only so much I can do. I remember... um, my wife's grandfather, he passed away, you know, several years ago. And uh, he would look at our kids running around, and he would always say, wasted energy. <laughs> you know, he always would say, if I could bottle that and just use it and drink it. I mean, think about it. All the youth, all the young children, how much energy they, that they had. We think back to the Reformation when we learn about, uh, correct me, was it Sweden, where we had nine-year-old children standing up and preaching because it was illegal for adults. Let me ask you, if it, today it became illegal for us adults to speak in public about Jesus, would your children be able to stand and fill that role? Have we brought them to the place where they have that conviction, where they're willing to surrender their lives for God's sake. I've had to ask my, myself that question many times. I've, had, I've asked myself the same question. If my oldest, who is now 14, if an army invaded and took him off to a foreign land, would he be able to stand like Daniel? If, a bunch, if, if he was taken off, you know, not because of his siblings, preferably, 
But in a situation where Joseph was taken, would he be able to be as firm and as straight and convicted as Joseph? And those are some serious questions that we need to ask ourselves as parents. What is the ultimate goal of education? How soon might the end come, the end of suffering and sorrow and sin? How soon in a place of possession here, with its blight of sin and pain, our children might receive their inheritance, where the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever, where the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard. Again, that was taken from Education 271. Education, page 276. Listen to this. Never will education accomplish all that it might and should accomplish until the importance of the parents work. So the parents, you, are, you guys are involved. Until the importance of the parents' work is fully recognized and they receive a training for its sacred responsibilities. Bob Jorgensen would always say, that many parents, many Adventists are doing public schooling at home. He said it's not true education. If you think about it, all you're doing is you're doing this, taking the same exact thing that the public schools are doing or that the um, church schools are doing, and you're just doing it at home. And that's a somber thought. For years, my wife and I did that. Education, page 275. The child's... first teacher is the mother during the period of greatest susceptibility and most rapid development in his or her education is to a great degree in her hands mothers you have a heavy burden on your hand my wife feels that burden very heavily but know that with that burden comes many many promises and God will not leave you nor forsake you to do it on your own To her first is given opportunity to mold the character for good or for evil. She should understand the value of her opportunity and above every other teacher. Did you hear that? Above every other teacher should be qualified to use it best. Use it to the best account. Yet there is no other to whose training so little thought is given. The one whose influence in education is most potent and far-reaching is the one for whose assistance there is the least systematic effort. I had a conversation with um, a a friend of mine one time, and their child was going to school, and they were complaining about the teacher and the problems that the child was having, and that the teacher was sending too much homework, and uh, as I listened, this was a this, these were multiple conversations, hours and hours on, on this. And then one day I finally said to her, I said, you're farming your child off to another to teach them how to think. If you really care about your child, you will stop doing that. Don't put the education in their hands. Now, she was a single mother. She, couldn't, she could not homeschool her child. She didn't have you know, um, uh, um, the opportunity the opportunity that some of you around here have. But um, so I said, when that child comes home, give them a book to read. Take them out in the garden. Teach them how to build a box. Do something with woodworking. Uh, if a lawnmower doesn't work, go online. You can do so much now online. Google. Find that lawnmower model and have them take it apart. If they break it, so what? But you know what? 
the lesson that that child will be learning will be far greater than what they're learning now. Because what you're doing, it's not, it, and, and th again, multiple, multiple conversations, hours and hours, nothing was changing. It was always, she was complaining about the teacher. She was complaining about this. And this was over a period of two years. So I said, let's change this. You're where you're at, but let's work with what you have. Do something. Get them a book. Teach them, a, you know, get them a book. Um, something that's going to build character, to expand their mind. Get them a book learning about butterflies. Do a, a, um, do a unit study on the life cycle of a butterfly. Enrich him. Motivate him. Give him something to aspire for. Because he's wallowing. And where he's wallowing, he's not advancing. And his soul is more important than the teacher that you're complaining about. So find something, anything. One of the things Bob shared with me a few weeks ago, actually it might have been a couple months ago now, is he was talking about a lot of education has to do with really training the parents. It's not about training the child. It's about training the parents. Because if the parents cannot take um, active part in educating their, their children, then they first need to be educated before doing, doing it. I'll stop there and um, let you guys ask me some questions. Um, I know it was a little bit jumbled, and I'll you know, try to do a little bit better and more organized tomorrow. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.